Okay, we're back. Uh, Landmine Radio here with uh, my good buddy, Dr. Jerome List. Hello, Dr. List. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeff. Uh, happy to be here. Glad, glad you uh, agreed to be on. So you and I go back quite a long time. I met you, trying to think, many, many years ago. You're an ENT. What is that? Ear, nose, and throat. Yes, it's a, a physician of, uh, we specialize. It's a specialty, a medical specialty in ear, nose, and throat diseases. And uh, that was my that was my chosen specialty. So I've, I've had a long time, I've had this nose problem, these nasal polyps. But years ago, I heard of you through a friend because you actually speak Russian. And I speak Russian. You lived in Russia a long time ago. And we had that connection initially before I started seeing you for my, my you did the surgery uh, four years ago for me. So that's correct. I uh, actually part of my training uh, was at the Pavlov Medical Institute in St. Petersburg, and that was uh, way back in the late '70s, and that's my connection with uh, Russia. Of course, training back then was uh, there was there was no English allowed. It was it was all in Russian, so that's why I had to learn Russian. I didn't have a choice. So you're kind of a unique you're you're a unique person. You're you're an American citizen, but you also have some ties to I think Costa Rica, right? That's correct. I'm dual citizen and. Uh, um, that's kind of a long story on how that how that came about, but I am dual citizen, which is which, as I understand, is allowed now. But back then, it was not real certain as to whether that was a legally uh, allowed status. But that's been clarified now. Many years afterwards, that's been clarified, and it's allowed now. That's how you were able to study in the Soviet Union. I, so I that's correct. I was uh, uh, at the time I was. Uh, uh, finished uh, the University of Costa Rica, and I was uh, working in Costa Rica, and I was awarded a scholarship to do specialty training in the uh, Soviet Union then, uh, and uh, that was my connection with uh, that was my connection with Russia. Did they ever think you were like a spy? Like, oh, who's this American guy? Or did you kind of just speak Russian and Spanish? Or actually, not in not in not in Russia. They were not they were not particularly concerned about that. But they were in Costa Rica when I returned to uh, work in Costa Rica. There was concern that I was. Now a double agent. Initially, I was. <laughs> uh, some people in Costa Rica felt that I was uh, perhaps a government agent from the United States. And then when I returned from uh, from the Soviet Union, they thought perhaps I had ties with intelligence in the uh, Soviet Union, which is entirely uh, <laughs> now, not cor- not correct. Now we have no idea who the guy is. You know, he's got all <laughs> these were, connections. They were they were pretty confused. And so before you became an ENT, you were a, you were a dentist, right? So I finished dental school in, in Costa Rica, and the specialty that I did in the Soviet Union was oral surgery. And uh, um, after I returned from the Soviet Union, as I, as I previously mentioned, this was more than just joking, but uh, politically it was made very difficult for me to uh, set up and practice in, in Costa Rica. And so that was one of the reasons why I returned to the United States and had to kind of begin my career over again. Uh, just because foreign training is not very well accepted in the United States. And so that's how I wound up going back to medical school. And because I already had an interest in oral surgery and things of the head and the neck area, my special, my chosen specialty was then logically uh, geared towards ear, nose, and throat uh, issues. So did you have to go totally back to medical school? or I started from uh, day one in medical school. That's correct. Wow. So you, mm-hmm. you, you have a, a lot of med- – you have a lot of – Education compared to the well, average person, probably we do, but I, I do, but it's not. I don't think it's a recommended uh, path. I, I 
I try to counsel a lot of young people in career decisions and how to decide which career, should I go into dentistry, should I go into medicine, and I went both paths, and, and so that's probably not the wisest way to do that, but it just happens that circumstances led me to uh, follow that path. So let's talk a little bit about, so I had, I had my problem I can talk about, I had the nasal polyps, which isn't you know uncommon, and I had to eventually get surgery, and but there's so many problems that occur in the ears or the nose or the head, the throat, that I think some people don't necessarily know they can even deal with. They just kind of accept it as this is how I live my life. Could you talk about some of the, the common problems that people may, maybe don't know they can get fixed? And they come see you and all of a sudden they do something and it's, you know, it's resolved? Well, some common problems would be tumors or polyps of the vocal cords, and those actually are opposite of what you're saying because little bitty tumors of the vocal cord will affect somebody's voice very significantly. So they usually they usually come out and say there's something wrong or their friends will push them to go and have a, a physician take a look at that. Um, there's some other uh, less subtle or perhaps more subtle uh, things that people don't know about, and those could be tumors of the throat. And basically, uh, for some reason, some of them start out and they don't really have a lot of symptoms. I mean, we think that a tumor of the throat or the tonsil or something like that would be very painful and very uncomfortable, when in reality, for a lot of people, that's not the case. And so um, those are things that people need to have some follow-up. If they have something unusual with their swallowing or their throat, they need to have it checked out because pain or inability to swallow is not always the, the hallmark finding of those, of those conditions. Um, other areas that I deal with are trauma, and those are, I mean, I, I gained a lot of experience in trauma here in, in, uh, in Alaska, partly because there's a lot of trauma that we have here. The trauma in the in the Soviet Union was very different. It was mostly uh, a fist fight related. In the United States, it's mostly uh, motor vehicle or snow machine or airplane uh, type related. So the trauma here in the United States is quite different than what it was in the in the Soviet do you, Union. You do do you do reconstructive stuff as well as like the inside, but you know, reconstructive facial. Again, my specialty is in the head and neck area, so facial reconstruction, um, getting people pieced back together after major accidents is something that I've that I've done for for a long time. I think I brought up um, that one condition I heard about and I think you said you had some experience with it where a person they always have constant sharpness or stabbing sensation in their face. You've talked about that a little bit that I think is really interesting cuz there's no cure so, for it. So there is a condition uh, called trigeminal neuralgia or tic de la rue. Um, and basically, we don't entirely understand the physiology, but people have some sharp, lancinating pains that are uh, triggered often by light touch on the skin, um, by eating, by chewing, by combing your hair, by brushing your teeth, and it's uh, quite, uh, quite devastating. Um, here a couple of weeks ago, I was going through some historic medical uh, books, and uh, I realized that this disease has been so prevalent throughout ages, and it's uh, been a mystery as to how to best uh, deal with it, but uh, it's it's been around for a long time, and it's a pretty uncomfortable, you know, condition. How, how, is there a way to make it not hurt so much, or deal with it, or treat it? Well, in my opinion, it's probably the manifestation of different things. We don't entirely understand the physiology. Uh, some people have thought that the uh, ganglion, the ganglion is where the nerve bodies live uh, inside the skull, um, have some pressure on them by a blood vessel, and that basically that that blood vessel causes a loss of myelin. Myelin is kind of the sheath or the um, insulation on the on the nerves. And when you lose that insulation, then the nerve malfunctions. 
And so there's a neurosurgical operation whereby they go in and they put a little sponge in between the ganglion and uh, the presumed uh, blood vessel. And for some people, it's just been a night and day uh, treatment. Uh, I have had some patients who have had that procedure done, and it's not been entirely effective or it's not really resolved their their problems. And so it's a, it's a, it's a very difficult disease to, to deal with. People are so... Um, um, incapacitated by this that they're become pretty much non-functional and they can't really do a lot because they just don't know when it's going to hit them that quality of life their quality of life is is zero so so how much of your time do you spend in the office and how much do you spend because a lot of your work is involving surgery right so throat tonsils nose ear so ear nose and throat especially i mean we are a surgical specialty of of medicine and we uh it depends on on different uh uh, individuals, but I, I don't consider myself to be an aggressive uh, surgeon. And so I spend one day a week in mostly dedicated to surgery. Um, that's good for my office staff because they get rid of me for a full day and they don't have to deal with me. Get rid me. of the boss for a couple of <laughs> <laughs> They don't have to deal with me for the whole day. But I do about one day of, of a week of, of surgery. Some other, some other surgeons may do two days a week or more than that. Um, but, but, but in my specialty, that's pretty common that we spend one or two days in surgery a and week. You're here at Providence, so you, you just do, do Providence? Is that kind of how it works? Or? No, my office, I lease uh, office space from Providence, but I actually work at uh, uh, the Alaska Surgery Center. I work at Alaska Regional Hospital. I actually have privileges at the Matsu Hospital and uh, both also here at Providence. Uh, there's a small surgery center here in the outpatient uh, facility called Creekside Surgery Center, mm-hmm. which I, I do a fair amount of so, surgery there also. So what does that mean, privileges? That means the hospital allows you to do surgery? Do you have to get certified or approved or each so, hospital? So for a, for a person to be able to work or do surgery or do anything at a hospital, you have to be privileged. And that simply means that there's a group of qualifications that you need to meet, starting by you have to have a, a, a medical license in the state of Alaska, you have to be in good standing, you have to have you have to be current with your uh, um, uh, medical education, you have to you have to be uh, um, up, up to date with uh, you know your flu shots and, and things like that, and then from there they go and they. Um, look at your medical license, and that's what's called primary source verification, where they don't just, you can't just walk in with a copy of a medical license and say, here, I'm a doctor. We've heard of the stories of people impersonating as a doctor. So, like, uh, what's that movie, um, Catch Me If You Can? Right. The Frank Abbott movie. Right. True story. Right. <laughs> he, he, no, uh, no, no, these are, no, these, this, this stuff has happened. And so the uh, credentialing bodies of each hospital and each surgery center and what have you, they have to be very, very good about uh, doing this. And primary care, primary source verification is where they go. For instance, if I say I have a medical degree from the University of Oklahoma, which is where mine is, um, they actually call the University of Oklahoma or they contact them directly. So it doesn't necessarily come from the individual. Mm-hmm. So it's quite an involved uh, process. And ad- in addition, um, those credentials are reviewed on a periodic basis and renewed. So it doesn't mean that if I get credentials here at Providence that that's in perpetuity. It simply means that for a period of two years, I still have to fulfill my obligations and be in good standing like a, and continue to have my medical education certificates and so on and so forth. Like a pilot's license. Yes, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing process, right? I was just going to say, so you have the medical stuff, you're a dentist and... You're um, ENT, and then you speak Russian and Spanish. You're also a pilot. You're kind of maybe 
one of the like the most interesting man in the world. You have, you have the beard, like the mm-hmm. most interesting man in the world too. You have quite a bit of a history of accomplishments. Well, I, I learned to fly here in Alaska, and that was uh, uh, that's obviously a very Alaskan thing. Actually, I think it's uh, it's sometimes a shame not to. It's so beautiful here that it's a shame not to not to fly. Uh, a lot of the beauty of the state is seen when you fly. Yeah. I've heard this little saying that uh, uh, Alaska is only 15 minutes away from Anchorage by bush plane. And so there's some beautiful <laughs> places here in Alaska, but you have to be able to, to access them by that. So flying has been a very exciting thing. I'm, I, I do, I do. My disclaimer is that I'm a, a fair weather pilot and I don't, uh, I don't fly in any weather conditions whatsoever. And it's kept me alive. And cool. so I'm, I'm doing, I intend to keep flying. Not, not a lot of IFR? I don't. I don't do any, any instrument. Uh, I, I stay away from IFR conditions, and I um, I like to uh, fly when it's in good weather. And I'm probably going to keep it that way. It's probably a good good call. So uh, you said you wanted to talk a little bit about um, interesting topic of uh, epilepsy. So <clears throat> three or four years ago, actually, the way I initially got hooked up with this was a um, I, I read a, 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 a lay magazine about how some of the treatment for epilepsy could be accomplished by putting an electrical current on a nerve in the neck called the vagus nerve. And so I was very interested by that, but I didn't know who was doing this or how this was done or if it was mainstream or what it was. And so probably about a year and a half to two years later, I happened to run into one of the representatives. Um, the company was then called Cyberonics. And um, it's a company that's developed a device. It's like a cardiac pacemaker, but basically puts an electrical current on the left vagus nerve, which in turn sends this current back to the brain and has a tremendous impact on epilepsy. Now, the patients who are candidates for this are patients who are called drug-resistant uh, epilepsy, who have drug-resistant epilepsy. And um, it means that they have not uh, responded well to medication. A good number of patients who are diagnosed with epilepsy are put on a medication and they basically, uh, their seizures stop and they function in society. And so there are people all around us. Actually, the shocking statistic to me, at least, is that one in 26 people in the United States have epilepsy. So it's a pretty common uh, common disease. So, so the, the, and I'm not a doctor, but I, when I hear epilepsy, the main thing or the main symptom is seizures, right? Seizures, correct. And there's a whole variety of types of seizures, but basically seizures is the, is the uh, main problem that these patients have. That's so right. this, this device or this charge you put on the nerve, how many, what percentage of people is it effective with? Well, it's, it's very, very effective. And I think um, about 15 years ago when this was first done, some major studies were done in the United States to, to really evaluate the effectiveness of it. And it was shown to be overwhelmingly effective. Um, I'm not sure when the second, there was a second study done that confirmed this. And I think that it's been scrutinized again here two years ago, um, partly because it's an expensive uh, piece of technology and insurance companies want to make sure that this is really working and doing what they say it's supposed to be doing. And so another research uh, project was done, and it's, it's, the conclusion was it's overwhelmingly effective. What about, control. like, in your, anecdotally, in your experience with the procedure, how, how have your patients responded? So it, it's hard for me. I'm part of the team. I'm, I'm the surgical part of this who installs this. Typically, neurologists are the ones who uh, program the device. So the program, so the device, when I first put it in, is turned off uh, most of the times. And so... Um, 
as, as the neurologist uh, starts to see the patients, they will start increasing the parameters of the electrical currents, and there's a bunch of parameters that they can increase on that. And as the effectiveness starts building, then basically they may start tapering off on some of their medications, and that's one of the problems. A lot of these patients are on a lot of medications, and they have a lot of side effects. And medications, for some reason, uh, have what's called a honeymoon period. Often when they start on a new medication, they'll, they'll, they'll be very excited because the medication works very, very well. And as time goes on, the medication tends to be less effective to control their symptoms. The VNS, the vagal nerve stimulator, is actually the opposite and we don't entirely understand this. Some people have some thoughts about this, but I don't, I'm not sure we entirely understand it. And that is, as if time goes on, the results of the vagal nerve stimulation in, uh, increases in effectiveness. In, in other words, it's more effective in aborting or keeping the patients from having seizures. And so that's very exciting for me because I've seen a lot of patients really, really benefited uh, from the use of this technology. Here recently, I just have an instance oh, about two months ago where a young man, um, he was actually scheduled to have a vagal nerve stimulator implanted because of his epilepsy, and he went into a condition that's called status epilepticus, and that simply means that the person starts to have a seizure and they can't break the seizure with medications or with doing anything. And so one of the ways that they deal with it is that they um, put the uh, a patient into a medically induced coma you oh, know, to wow. abort this. And so Jeez. after a number of days, the uh, they would try to lighten up the medically induced coma and the young man would start seizing again, would have seizures again. And so um, this was something that I hadn't done before, but the patient was hospitalized at the Native Medical Center, and they transferred him over here to Providence. And I put in, as he was in this medically induced coma, I put in a vagal, I implanted a vagal nerve stimulator for him. And probably about uh, three to four days after that, they were able to get him out of his coma and get the tube out of his throat and get him uh, uh, awake again. Yeah. So that was Jeez. that was a little bit of an unusual circumstance, but it was. So how, all the medicines that they gave him were not effective for. So them. I mean, just I'm just kind of wondering how how big is this device? Because I mean, the nerve is like very, very, very tiny, right? Super, super thin, isn't it? The nerve is is is. <laughs> I, to, is it a microscope I, to see a nerve? Or can no, you, you don't. No, you can see the nerve, but it, it is as as um, as nerves go. I, I I always call it. It's kind of a wimpy nerve. It's not a very big. It's not a very impressive. Doesn't doesn't really catch your attention a lot. It's a fairly small little nerve but it does a lot and uh, so the device that goes around it is um, um, there's a there's there's some material called spiral wrap that's used to uh, organize computer cables and so we there's a very little bitty spiral wrap on the end of the wire that goes around the uh, nerve and um, it, that's how we attach the... Just clips on there? Or kind of? It kind of, it, it, it takes some fiddling around to get the spiral wrap wrapped around. And there are th actually three little wires that have to Where, be wrapped Where's around. his nerve? The front of the neck or the back of the neck? Or? The nerve is on the side of the neck. It, it follows a jugular vein. It's, it's right next to the jugular so vein. So how, how do you have to cut the, th so the you make incision a little, in the neck? You make a little incision in the neck and then you have to find the, find the nerve. Oh and sometimes God. finding the nerve can be challenging. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. When you first started doing surgery, you've been doing this for a long time, but were you nervous? Were you kind of, I don't know, scared or nervous to do something wrong? Now you probably just go in there and it's no big deal. But when you first, I mean, that, that's to me terrifying to put an incision in someone's neck by their jugular vein or, you know, do something in the throat or the nose. 
Well, I describe it, Jeff, as a, a, I think surgery is a humbling business, and I, I take it very seriously. Um, it, it, when I have several surgical cases, I'm exhausted usually because it requires 100% physical and mental attention to be able to carry yourself during these procedures. And so um, people's lives are, you know, dependent on you making a mistake or not making a mistake. So you have to be very, very, very intent on what's going on uh, when you're performing surgery. Um, it's also uh, very rewarding because once you've successfully done something, you, you just feel it's, it's like running a 10K. I mean, you work really, really hard, and then when you're finally done, you feel real good about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Um, surgery has a lot of different uh, uh, aspects and sides to it, but it's very intense. Um, it's 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 very consuming and, and it's very energy uh, draining. It really draws a lot out of me to to be able to be in surgery. So you also uh, were telling me a while back that you have this deal where you go down to Peru, right? And so you do a- so that's the that's the volunteer part, and and so I've I've <clears throat> been part of an organization called Faces. Uh, dot org and for anybody who's interested in donating that's a great cause but basically there's a group of us um, uh, who got together and wanted to do some volunteer work abroad and uh, we were invited to the northern part of uh, Peru and we've been going to Peru for 11 years now in a cleft lip and cleft palate uh, a volunteer project down there and it's been very very rewarding um, the Is last the last last January, we have another campaign coming up in January this year, but last January we operated on 49 children in the northern part of Peru, uh, which was very, very rewarding. So these problems, these cleft palates or cleft lips, something in the West is dealt with pretty simply, but in certain countries like maybe Peru, it's not as easily dealt with? Is that kind of what's going on? So it's just a matter of having the resources to do that. Um, cleft lip and cleft palate are universal. They happen in all races, in all countries, in all parts of the world. And so there are some people in northern Peru who think that some of the minerals from the runoff from the Andes are caused, and they think that they have a higher incidence. Basically what they have is a lower availability of resources to take care of these children. And so you don't see them that often here in the United States, but obviously they're very obvious when you see a newborn child with a cleft lip. It's, I mean, you don't need a medical degree to make the diagnosis. It's very, very obvious. Um, but down there... A lot of these people live in very rural areas, so coordinating them, a lot of the villages, they may have a, a child with a cleft lip, and they don't know what to do with it. Uh-huh. And so what we've done is we've teamed this This project. Originally came up by teaming up with a um, coffee-growing uh, organization called Cafe Femenino, which is a women-only um, co-op of, of uh, coffee growers in northern Peru. And so they are present in about 54 villages in the northern part of Peru. And so they have health aids that help uh, spread the information about cleft lip and cleft palate. And so a lot of our uh, clients are coming from some of those villages. To deal with the cleft lip or cleft palate, they have to go under anesthesia? That's correct. And that's one of the complexities um, whereby we have to... I mean, we don't do these in the rural areas. We have to go more to a uh, larger city. And the city where we do this is called Chiclayo. It's a, it's a fairly uh, a big city in the northern part of Peru. And we are teamed up with two hospitals there. Um, and that's, 
that's a, a complex ongoing problem because in Peru, the, uh, the senior leadership of the hospitals is uh, government appointed. And so every time there's a presidential election, we get new uh, hospital <laughs> officials. And so we have to renegotiate all of our agreements. Quote, unquote, negotiate. Right? Yeah, yeah, we have to. Yeah, yeah. And so, You're probably familiar with that in the yeah, well, Soviet Union. Or- well, I've, I've, we've developed a little, uh, <laughs> a little slogan called Peaceful Power. And so mm-hmm. we, we, we've gotten people together and we've tried to socialize them and the politics and medicine are, are, are universal. And so we try, to, we try to get these people to work together simply because working together is going to be more effic- efficient and provide better mm-hmm. care for the patients in the community. And so we really try to get groups to work together. I'm sure you're Spanish. Speaking helps a lot, right? My Spanish has been real critical down there, and probably not only understanding the Spanish, but being culturally uh, sensitive to how some of the things work down there has been very, very beneficial. How long is one of these? So I don't even know what it, I mean, I know it's like you can see the mark, right? I mean, I know what it looks like, but what is, what is, if you don't get that treated, what, what, hap- what happens to you? If you, if you, I'm sorry, what was untreated? Your, what happened if you have the cleft? Oh, so, so here in the United States, uh, that's very uncommon to see an untreated, you know, child with that. It's just basically, it's it's unheard of practically. In Peru, um, a number of years ago, we saw an individual who was 31 years old and had never been treated, and so it was it was very it was a medical curiosity to us because we don't know what an well, untreated what, cleft lip looks speaking like. Speaking problems or is it? Well, there there are two things. One is cosmetic. Uh, two is speaking or their ability to speak, and three is swallowing issues. And so um, the, um, it, it's interesting that actually we repaired that individual, and they're so ingrained, their speech didn't improve at all, and their swallowing didn't improve at all either. I mean, for an older individual, they, they, they just adapt to where yeah, they are. Yeah, it just are. becomes norm, the normal, normal Correct, and so it was very, very difficult. They were, they were very resistant to speech therapy and to swallowing therapy. So this is called faces.org, right? Faces, faces.org. And, and again, anybody who wants to donate, it's a great, it's a great uh, organization. A lot of people volunteering their time and uh, efforts to go down there and work with the local people in Peru. It's a great, great, great plug, you know, great plug for the, for the podcast. People can check that out, faces.org. Um, something else I want to talk to you about, you're, you're involved I think you're the chair, right, of Project Access? I'm currently the uh, chairman of the board for Anchorage Project Access. And uh, for people who don't know what that is, can you talk a little bit about? So, so Anchorage Project Access was created, um, I'm going to say, about 11 years ago. And um, I, I, I have to say, I'd like to take credit for this, but basically it was a um, copy of a project that was being done in Buncombe County, North Carolina. And the, the, the model for this project is, is the following. Uh, basically, organize a large group of physicians from the community or healthcare providers in the community and have them uh, donate a certain amount of time for patients who are underserved or who don't have insurance or who can't uh, get healthcare and um, um, be able to quantify the value of the services that were provided uh, by these physicians. And so we started this model. We actually worked for behind the scene probably about for about three years before we actually started seeing patients. But basically, we recruited a large uh, number of patients. Currently, we have over 630 patients, a correction, physicians who are uh, members of Anchorage Project Access, and they donate their time. These are all in Anchorage? 
And and mostly in Anchorage in the Anchorage Bowl, correct? Wow! Right. How many doctors are in Anchorage total? Oh, you know, I haven't. I don't keep track of that. Providence used to have about a, a thousand uh, physicians Dang. on staff, and it's, it, and it's a lot more. So there's than like that. thousands of. Oh yeah, yeah. Doctors. No, it's, wow! It's, it's a lot, and then we have, you know, the the physicians from uh, Native Medical Center, which again they don't go by the usual channels, so it's hard to hard to mm-hmm. keep track of them. But in any event, by putting a price to the services that are volunteered and donated by these physicians, we can use that as a leverage to go to the municipality and say, municipality of Anchorage, our physicians have donated uh, $2 million worth of services. Can you help us? And so we've enlisted. The state has been very generous in helping us with this project. Providence has been very, very generous in helping us. And so we have a network. So if somebody, for instance, needs a... um, hip replacement to be able to get back to work, then we have the anesthesiology group uh, at Providence will donate their services. The hospital will donate the operating room time and the recovery uh, time in the hospital. And the doctors, the surgeons will donate their time. And so we're able to um, uh, care for patients. And again, I'd like to say the, 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 the nicest stories are the ones that I hear where we're able to rehabilitate somebody and get them back into the productive workforce Mm-hmm. They don't all fall in that category, but basically those are the ones that are most gratifying and most satisfying. Now, we have a we have a significant budget because we have a central office who does the screening to make sure that these patients qualify for the assistance that we're going to be giving them. And then um, also the, um, the staff, what they do is they rotate around. So if you have a group of 20 orthopedic surgeons, then basically the first patient who comes and needs orthopedic services will be given assigned to the first orthopedic surgeon, and then they just rotate around, okay. and they keep track of that so that any one orthopedic surgeon doesn't get overloaded with more than uh, they can handle so, uh, volunteer cases. So what are your thoughts? I mean, this, is, this could be a whole separate podcast, but you have experience in Russia and Soviet Union and Costa Rica, and you know, I lived in Australia for a year, so you know we have this system that's so kind of crazy that if you don't have insurance, um, you're kind of screwed in a lot of ways if you have something wrong. Do you think a universal system is better or not be- I mean, what do you think is the solution to the high costs and then also the, the access for people who either don't have insurance or maybe lose their job? So our medical system in the United States is very, very complex. And a number of years ago, I was um, working on a political campaign with a local uh, candidate here in Anchorage and not, not me right <laughs> not, no 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 this was this is not this, this, it was it was not really important but basically we're very prone to criticizing the system and 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 saying how bad how poorly it works and how how Obamacare was such a bad thing or a good thing or whatever but the problem is that I, I stood back and said okay well we can sit here and criticize this but honestly if I was going to try to revamp the medical system I'm not sure exactly what I would do. I mean, I don't, I mean, it's, again, it's easy to criticize, but it's not real easy to come up with real viable, you know, solutions for that. And even though I think a lot of people feel that Obamacare was not the best thing for the United States, I take my hat off to President Obama for having tried, because before that, I don't think a lot of people had really embarked in trying uh-huh. to revamp the medical system. It needs to be, something needs to be done for the, for a medical system. It's It's broken. Uh- um, unfortunately, I think a lot of the misconceptions that exist are that the uh, physicians are, are, are over 
taxing the system, and that's one of the reasons research has been done, and it's been shown that of all the medical health care dollars that are expended in this country, probably only about 6 or 7% actually go to physicians' uh, services, reimbursement for their services. Or do they go to hospitals? Or? So the health care system is a huge machinery, and we have you know, pharmaceutical companies, and we have uh, DME vendors or medical device vendors. We have um, insurance. We have, I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge, there's so many things that are dependent on it. And I will have to say that a lot of people are pretty happy with the way the system is, and they're not real anxious to give up. I mean, I, my, my analysis or my kind of thoughts are, we have great health care. And if you can, if you can afford it, or if you have access to it, we have the best health care in the world, probably, or some of the best health care in the world. When it comes to you know our technology and the uh, the doctors, what they can do, and I've always kind of said if you're if you're well, very wealthy, you're fine, and if you're very if you're poor, there's Medicaid. But it's those people kind of in the middle who have a job, who aren't loaded, but you know have insurance, but maybe they have a very high deductible, and to get you know some even in my case, I had to get that surgery and I had a decent insurance, but it cost me between the hospital and everything and the insurance, it was like six thousand dollars out of pocket, you know, and that's. It's a lot of money to a person who doesn't make huge money, you know? So unfortunately, there's uh, this cost, this concept that's called cost shifting. And basically, cost shifting is basically taking um, from the services who pay or have sufficient reimbursement to support other services that don't. And case in point, I mean, um, the, the, the reimbursement, for instance, from Medicare is not enough for me to pay my overhead. I mean, that's been shown over and over and over, and it's not something that I'm just saying because I want to make more money. The, the reimbursement that I get from Medicare patients does not pay for my... To, and, so, and so I think that a lot of what's happening is that the private insurance have to kind of subsidize oh, you know, Medicare, those, yeah. those patients, and that's what's called cost shifting, is shifting over from that. And so I feel real bad for the working class because they're really, they're really carrying the load or the burden in my view, of other insurance plans, uh, uh, Medicare yeah. and Medicaid, that, that are not really you know, carrying their own load to pay for this. And um, so th- th- that, that concept, I think, is being challenged a lot. But I will assure you over and over that reimbursement from Medicare does not pay my overhead. It are, are the majority of your patients, I assume, middle, middle class people? You know, I don't really look at I, I don't really look at that, but um, I'm starting to look at um, the issue now with the Department of Corrections, which I've served them for many, many years, and I think I've been a good steward of the resources and trying to conserve the sort the the resources for the for the state of Alaska. Uh, but now they've adapted a Medicare payment system, and so I'm not sure that I can afford to continue to see all the Department of Corrections patients and, 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 and provide services to them. So I, when you say overhead, you're, you're factoring in your, your staff, your insurance, your, your yeah, the, medical insurance for your business, your, your uh, rent for the, the office. Yeah, probably the two most expensive things are rent and, uh, and my payroll. And it's, it's I mean... And you have, you have to, I'm assuming you have to carry malpractice insurance? You have to carry malpractice insurance. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of there's just a lot of expenses that that uh, that go on to run a medical practice. It's just it's just a lot of stuff, and I don't think that a lot of people realize how expensive it is to run a practice. And so, how long, how long have you had the practice for here in Anchorage? I've had the practice here for 27 years. So you've, yeah. you've probably seen drastic different shifts and differences over the last 25 years. 
you know, the, 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 the business is, is just going to the point where I'm having a hard time paying my overhead with what I'm with, with, with my work. And some people may not believe that, but the economy in Alaska has been slow and volumes have been slow and so on and so forth. And so it's been hard. It's been hard to make ends meet. I mean, this is this is not a lucrative business. And so when I have young people who are interested in going into medicine, I tell them, don't go in. You're so, not you're not going to make a lot of money in medicine. So with the exception of some very distinct, you know, you can't breathe or you're very big problem with the throat or something or the a lot of the stuff ENT um, with the exception of the big things that are urgent. I mean, people might not if the economy's not going great, they might not come see you if it's something they can kind of ignore or put off. I, I Whereas say, like if you break your arm or if you if your knees cracked, you know, you have to go right away. But some of the stuff that you deal with probably is I don't want to say elective, but maybe something you can kind of push off a little bit. I would say that's probably correct. And people with, uh, for instance, sinus infections or ear infections, I mean, they just they just don't come to the to the doctor to have those things taken care of. I mean, they're just not. I think the dental people have seen that a lot, also. I mean, people, you know, put dental care as a lower priority in their in their. I mean, people can't afford it. I mean, it's not it's not that they're really doing a bad thing by uh, putting in a lower priority slot. It's just they can't afford and it. They, and it's sad too because they've haven't they linked uh, you know bad dental hygiene to heart problems and other. I've read some articles about how you know more cavities you have and or dental issues, you know, linked to, you know, heart disease? Well, I would say a common disease that's probably put off easily is sleep apnea, and that's basically a slow, gradual, it's not a dramatic, it's not like breaking your arm, or it's not like uh, having an acute injury or having a heart attack or something like that. And so it kind of creeps up on you, and it's probably one of the most significant healthcare impacts that we have in this country. I mean, it's just basic. This is a, a lot of people I know have that, and they get that machine, that CPAP machine, and it seems to be a big help it is but they have to go through the process wherein the CPAP machine is not a comfortable or a, or a pleasant thing for most patients to do they sometimes stop doing that or some people simply don't go into the process of having that evaluated and uh, diagnosed and treated so to deal with that you do the sleep study thing first and then I assume they diagnose it they come see somebody like you well, um, I, I deal a lot with sleep apnea for a variety, for several reasons. One is that uh, some of those patients can respond to surgery, and so there's some surgical treatments that we can do for them that, that may uh, allow them to breathe better and adequately when they're sleeping at night. Other people who go on the CPAP machine for extended periods of time, and it may work very well for them, but typically it's very irritating for their nose, and over a period of time they get nasal congestion, they may get nosebleeds. They may yeah, I've seen the machine. It looks horrible. Like It looks like you're Darth <laughs> Vader or something. But it's, but it's a life-saving machine. I mean, even well, though I'm a surgeon, I'm a very strong advocate of CPAP just because it really helps a lot of people. Uh, something related to that I wanted to ask you about. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I've never had this, but I had something very close to it once. Some friends have had it. I think it's involving maybe related to sleep apnea. This condition where you wake up paralyzed. You know, you, you wake up and, you, and you're awake, but you can't like move for a second. Have you, have you heard of this? Or have you? Yeah, it's, it's called sleep paralysis. Sleep paralysis. Yeah. So a friend of mine said, I mean, it's terrifying. He woke up and, and he, couldn't, he couldn't move for a minute or something. He, he woke up, he was having a breathing problem. And he, he I mean, that's like fucking terrifying. So How common is that? So it's not very common at all, but it's, it's, there's a lot of things that happen in sleep. And so there are uh, four basic stages or planes of sleep that people go through. And then there's a so-called REM or rapid eye movement sleep plane, which is the one that gives you your physiological rest. 
And so a lot of these problems with sleepwalking, sleep paralysis, and what have you happen in the transition between one plane of sleep to another. And they may get stuck in one of those transitions, and that's where they have oh, those just, just The thought of that just terrifies me. I mean, just waking up and not being able to, to move. But usually it only lasts for a few seconds, right? Or not. Yeah, for, yeah, for, yeah, for most people. But again, it's not a very common condition. It's not something that we see very often. Well, I appreciate you doing the podcast. It's been great. Um, thanks. thanks for having me. There's a lot of interesting. I think we could probably do another one of these because once this one comes up, I'm going to tell people if they have any, maybe if they have any questions or something, we could see how many we get. We could do another one because there's so many fascinating things with the, the head, you know, that I think you're dealing with probably one of the most interesting parts of the body. I mean, the, <laughs> the brain, that's not yeah. you. That, you're, not, you're not the brain really, are you? I, I try to stay out of this. It's not my area of specialty, so I try to stay out of the brain as, as much as I can. But when you're doing the nose surgery, sometimes you're pretty close to the brain. You're very, right? very close to the brain, and that's one of the risks with sinus surgery is that you are very, very close to the, to the brain, and so you have to be very, very careful with that. I remember when I got mine, you told me I was all worried about things. You said, you said I said I was reading WebMD. You said, do not read WebMD. Mm-hmm. Remember, <laughs> stay away from that. So just as a, as a, as a closing, if we're, if we're closing here, Jeff, but basically remember faces – Foundation uh, is is a good cause to donate. If you have the opportunity to do that, that would be fantastic. Dr. List, I appreciate you doing this. It's been great. And uh, we'll uh, look forward to doing it again sometime. Land, land.